I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Paul Muldoon. Download the MP3 of our produced show at onbeing.org. I don't know if you know that we, um, we actually had your voice in the show. We had Mohammed Farouz on. Oh, yes. That, that album that he uh-huh. did for Deutsche Grammophon. Right. And we had uh, some of the readings, including yours. I think you were reading Yeats. Was it? No, Auden in memory of yes. W.B. Yeats. Are we, have we started yet? I think we probably have. Chris, are we? Well, yeah, just let me know that, please, yeah. would you? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. He, I think he, he, he wants to hear. I'm just talking so he can get Okay, I'll give you yeah. some level. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll be using this kind of level. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I will arise and go now and go to Inish Free and a small cabin built there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive. That seems to be okay. 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 Chris, are we ready? Okay. All right. Um, you know, I'll just tell you I do, I do a lot of public events and I do a lot of um, – more of my interviews are by ISDN, right? So, mm-hmm. when, so, so the person. So, this is special for us that you're here in this. Right, and it's and much it's better if the here. person is if we can see each other. Yeah, although um, the discipline of having to communicate everything with the voice alone is also an interesting discipline. It is, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. is. So, so you were born in County Armagh, Armagh, Armagh in Northern Ireland, um, in a Catholic family in the Moy. The Moy was the name of the village? The Moy is the name of the village. Mm-hmm. It's the, the village nearby. It's actually on the border of counties Armagh and Tyrone. So it's about halfway oh, across okay. Northern Ireland. Yeah. And uh, we were actually in County Armagh, but the Moy itself is in, is in County Tyrone substantially. Okay. And then there's a little village across from it, a hamlet really, called Charlemont. Mm-hmm. So a small place. Interesting. And um, was there a... Was there a, was there a religious dimension to your to the Catholicism of your, of your childhood as much as an ethnic dimension, or how how important was that to kind of who you were? You know, it's very hard to disentangle really mm-hmm. the um, the cultural component of being a Catholic in uh, I suppose anywhere in the world, and certainly in Northern Ireland, right. from the uh, the uh, the notion of belief. Um, I would say that. Uh, Certainly as a child, I would have had made no distinction between cultural Catholicism, as it were, and mm-hmm. belief. It was just one didn't know what one was doing, basically. I was a Catholic. I went to Mass every Sunday. I went to confession uh, every Saturday. I, You know, we celebrated all the the feast days. We, right. we were Catholics. We believed in... Um, the basic tenets of Christianity, uh, i.e., that uh, that uh, Christ had, uh, was God, came down into the world, and uh, uh, and rose from the dead. So that was uh, our basic world picture, mm-hmm. and uh, that informed a great deal of what we did. And. To be born in in that part of the world also was to be born in a place that loved poetry and kind of lived and breathed story. And I wonder if you think about, if you think in terms of the spiritual background of your life, it, it expansively defined, um, would you think about poetry and story as, as, as a piece of that as well? 
Well, I, I would say so, yes. I mean, I wouldn't have been conscious of that right, as a right. child. But of course, um, the um, we were brought up uh, in a culture where um, – for example, off an evening, a knock might come to the door and a neighbor would be there and he would be um, hoping to come in and he was welcomed in and he'd have a cup of tea at least. And um, then he, uh, he, predominantly he, but a few women came around too, um, would perhaps sing a song or recite a, a ballad or a poem. Um, so that was certainly we were conscious of the the, the 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 larger literary tradition. I mean, the tradition in its wider sense, yeah. including the oral tradition, and um, so that certainly was part of the back of our mind too, um, or perhaps even the front of our mind. Mm-hmm. But way up front, I think, was the religious aspect. I mean, if we'd if one had said spirituality, that's what we would have been talking about. It was organized religion, right? Um, and uh, Catholicism in particular. You, you've also, um, you've also, you noted in another interview that the Celts had a god of eloquence, which I loved. Um, Ogmios? Ogmios. Oh yes, that's right. That's right? Uh, where the uh, the alphabet Ogum, um, mm. as it's known, is it relates to that the name of that god. Right. It's the god of language, and Ogum itself, of course, is the uh, the language that was used primarily for um, oh the identification of of graves, you know, the, it was a language that uh, you've probably seen it represented down the side of a stone. Oh. Um, it's usually written on stone. I don't know if it's written anywhere else, though it may have been. And uh, it's usually on a graveyard inscription, the name of uh, whoever is buried there. And it's a language uh, based on uh, uh, nicks down the side of a stone. Yeah, it's uh, it's um, a language that, you know, now, of course, they were able to deduce, to deduce what it uh, – how to read it, right. there must be some kind of equivalent of the Rosetta Stone. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure what it is or where it is, but there is a way of uh, of reading it for those who are into that. I'm not one of them. Yeah, I, I, I love that notion of um, eloquence as a, as a virtue, you know, a kind of sacred thing. Well, eloquence is, of course, uh, something to be admired. I mean, if we think that uh, language is what separates us from the other mm. animals. Though, mind you, there are moments when one wonders about that. If indeed some of the other animals certainly can't communicate, if not exactly speak, though they have forms of speech. Mm. Uh, I think cats and dogs or horses, pigs, are all capable of communication, um, in a ver- ver- if not verbal, then certainly uh, oral communication but so eloquence is something that certainly is admired in that culture and uh, I'm sure it's one of the reasons why uh, there's been so much writing to come out of Ireland mm. uh, it's it's a country uh, where in general people admire the ability to use words uh, there's a downside to that, of course. I mean, eloquence is not uh, necessarily 
um, absolutely at the service of um, truth, for example. Mm. And, um, you know, one may be eloquent, uh, one may have a huge rhetorical capacity uh, that is uh, at the service of, you know, ideas that are bogus or right. uh, so been able to blather on. And indeed in Ireland, we, while we admire um, the people who are good talkers, we also recognize people who um, talk, as they say, out of both sides of their mouth. Right. Right. And uh, which is is a description that's used of various politicians, for example, mm. and I'm sure it could just as handily be used of politicians in any part of the world, including perhaps America. Yeah, I just don't. I don't know that eloquence is ever a word. A word you would very often apply to American politicians. Well, some of them are quite eloquent. I think mm-hmm. the present President Obama yes. is very is very eloquent. Bill Clinton was extremely eloquent. Yes. Um, Absolutely. They're kind of fabulous Mm -hmm. talkers. And um, I love the way – what I like very much about President Obama is the fact that he he thinks about what he says and one can actually see him thinking. Less and less. I mean initially the uh, uh, President Obama was willing in the very early days of his office to say, you know, let me think about that. uh, I'm not absolutely certain of that. And um, he embodied, as I recall, uh, what I think of as a really beautiful um, admission of ignorance mm-hmm. and of um, of being willing to wait for words to come rather than right. being merely eloquent and sort of, you know, throw out the usual old garbage, which, which of course, any of us or many of us yeah. are capable of doing. I'm probably doing it right now. I'm sort of blathering on. My mouth is working. Um, and that, of course, changed um, quite early on because um, – I think there was he came under a certain amount of pressure, yeah, as well, I recall it. It's not necessarily rewarded. It's not rewarded. Mm-hmm. It's not rewarded mm-hmm. because for some reason we continue to admire people who are um, eloquent, merely eloquent, one might say, you know, who have a ready answer for mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. Who, who are not willing to be seen to stop and to admit ignorance. As a teacher, um, it's actually, I mean, it sounds as if uh, as if it might be manipulative to say, uh, or descri- one's describing manipulation, saying it's actually a terrific uh, teaching tool, device, to, to say to students, actually, I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Mm. That's okay. Right. And in fact, in the broader... Um, scope of things. One of the things I tried to teach, um, which is after all one of my main jobs, is, is something akin to ignorance. Um, you know, it's difficult uh, to suggest to a Princeton student, uh, and, and it's those who, uh, it's Princeton students with whom I mostly work, you know, that actually you may know a great deal about this, that and the other, but if you're interested in the poetry business, what you've got to be 
willing to mm-hmm. do is to accept uh, that ideally one knows nothing, you know, and uh, that's what I try to teach. That, that kind of um, that that kind of leads you know where where I wanted to go next. I'm I'm very um, interested in this question of you know uh, where where poetry. What, what poetry gives voice to in us, what it works in human beings. Um, and I've discussed this with, with, with poets along the way and, I, and, and musicians. Um, and I think that what you just said is one, one way to start to talk about that. I mean, how, how would you start to talk about, you know, what poetry as a form of expression and also its forms of language distinctively draws out? Well, it is a form of expression, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it is an expression of something within, as well as something without, and perhaps indeed the point at which the two combine. It's very difficult to find a decent metaphor for this. One of the defining characteristics of a metaphor, of course, is that it breaks down. Fairly soon, mm-hmm. you know, only only up to a point. You mean any metaphor? That's right, mm-hmm. any metaphor. Mm-hmm. Only up to a point is my love, like a red red rose. Right. Only up to a point. Um, so to find a decent way of of thinking about it, you know, the expression. I let's think of what I would say to my students. I mean, the expression of it's not as if one is setting out to express oneself. And I say that because ideally one has no sense of what is going to come out. As a poet, you mean? As a poet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not as if one has a point of view, I think, ideally, which is not to say, of course, that there are poems that don't present points of view. Not to say that one has an idea, which is, of course, not to say that poems don't express ideas. But that's not where we begin. We begin again from ignorance, from perhaps the germ of something, from a hunch, from a notion that if we take a couple of elements in the world and set them down, something might, something interesting might happen. And gradually, as the poem, in this case, comes into being, what it's trying to do in the world uh, gradually becomes clear. Hmm. And it's only, in fact, as one comes out the other end of it, I think, ideally, that one realizes what it is. Now, of course, there are other theories of art. I mean, Bertolt Brecht, for example, would say, well, actually, we have to begin with the idea we're going to make a political point. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I absolutely understand that. It's not the kind of art making I'm interested in. Um, I'm interested in um, revelation and hmm. what will be revealed through the poem, through me, not what I have to reveal, but what it has to reveal, hmm. if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. So I have no, no revelations at all. I know nothing. I'm not to be trusted on anything. <laughs> but the poem may know something and may be trusted, actually, uh, on, 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 on what it has to hmm what it has to uh, express in the world. So we come out the other end with an expression, but not we don't go in there 
with an expression. In my practice, mm-hmm. in my practice, others may think about it differently. And as much as you are, it sounds like uh, perhaps surprised by you. you there's there's an, a, a, a process of discovery for you of what the poem is. Totally. Right? There's got to be a process mm-hmm. of discovery. And then uh, are you sometimes surprised by that work the poem does in the world, which you also could not have intended, or how it lands in other people? Well, yes. I mean, part of the job, of course, is to try to figure out what its impact will be. Mm. As you're writing. As one's writing. All right. Because if you think about it, again, it's hard to find a decent analogy for this, but let's just take it that there are two people involved in the writing of the poem. Mm. There's the writer who is appealing to her unconscious, to her profound sense of unknowing. And then there's the reader who, as the poem comes into being, as I say, as one word puts itself after another, is trying to figure out um, what the impact of those words in that order might be from a position of knowing, right? Mm. And it's the negotiation between these two, the unknowing and the knowing, that... um, you know, for, for crudely put, would represent the positions of the writer and the reader. So the first reader of the poem is the writer herself. Mm-hmm. She's the person who reads it first and tries to figure out what sense it might be making in the world. Because making sense of and in the world are what we're talking about. Yeah. Now, as you suggest, that sense may be uh, imperfect the, because she's appealing to her unconscious um, which we really don't quite have a handle on never quite have a handle on there's almost inevitably going to be some component of the poem that she has overlooked that she didn't quite get but the job of the writer is to by and large um, diminish the range of readings. There is a popular... Diminish the range of... of you, mean, you mean interpretations? Interpretations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, there's a, there's a popular view, mm-hmm. uh, and, and why, wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't people want to believe it, mm-hmm. that the poem means any old thing to any old person who comes along. That poem means whatever I want it to mean. Well, uh, that's just not true. It's not the case, of course, that any two people see exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. But they see roughly the same thing. They're reading roughly the same poem. They must be. Mm -hmm. Because only it's only if they are that there's any kind of vague consensus, though consensus is not something we always achieve, of course, with, with the arts in terms of, you know, reading them. But in general, there's a consensus, this is actually quite good. Or actually, this is quite quite ineffective Mm -hmm. in the way it does business. Each person does bring something to the poem in a strange way the poem is indeed only finished, only completely becomes completely what it might be when that other person comes to it. Right. But what they're bringing to it, I think, ideally, ideally has been anticipated by the the first writer-reader. Mm-hmm. And then the reader 
puts herself in the position of the writer, is on the same page as the writer, is looking at the same material, seeing how some of the same decisions were made, capable, though, of deciding that some of those decisions weren't the right ones. Right. <laughs> and that's how we know uh, that uh, there's something askew in a poem. Hmm. Again, this is just a, a metaphor. It's just a way of thinking about it. But it's because we really are in much the same place as the first writer-reader that we recognize what the poem is trying to do. Hmm. And we can see that actually it's falling short of that mm. or it's truly doing that. Mm. So the system of, um, the system of uh, criticism, I mean, the, 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 the trying to figure out if a poem is effective or not is determined by the poem itself. It sets up its own terms, the critical terms by which it will be read. Mm. You know, one thing you said, um, I mean, you, as I say, you've done... You've done many different kinds of writing in your life. Um, I have tried. Right? And, you, and you've written for radio, for example, and you've, you've written for television and you've written for music. Um, one thing you've said about, about poetry that is distinct from other kinds of writing mm -hmm. that intrigues me is that poetry doesn't build to the big idea like many other kinds of writing, um, but it starts there, that the poem starts where many uh, kinds of writing would be winding up. I did say something like that. Mm. Of course, one has to, I have to think of all the things <laughs> one has said, including all the daft things one has said, I'm sure. that um, I think I, I recognize what you're alluding to. I um, think that may have been that. You, there was a lovely interview in the Paris Review. review. I think it may have been that interview. Uh -huh. um, well, I was, yes, I think I was talking about... Well, I mean, I can just, yeah, I can just ask you, like, how, how would you talk about how po writing a poem is distinct from all those other kinds of writing? What, what? Well, actually, I think it's often most useful not to think of it as being all that distinct. Mm -hmm. I think one of the problems with the, the general perception of poetry is that we think it's special. Mm. And if anything, I think we'd be better served if we thought it was much more like prose fiction, uh, say, much more like... Uh, um, theater criticism or film criticism um, than occupying this kind of special realm, poetry land, you know? Yeah. Poetryville where all bets are off, anything can happen. And again, I used to say to my students, and still do, if they listen to me, um, which is unlikely, of course, that I expect the poem to be at least as interesting um, as the film review in the next column. Mm -hmm. I expect it to, or at least in general, there's no particular reason why it wouldn't have a beginning, middle and an end, generally in that order, though of course there are times when that's not what it needs, but, uh, and that it makes sense. Unless, for some reason, it doesn't quite, <laughs> right. you know? And that uh, as much thought has gone into it as has gone into a um, film review or the leader in the local newspaper, right. the op-ed piece, and that it actually, and one comes out the other end of it thinking, huh, 
that was interesting. I'm glad I was in there. I actually learned something in there, you know, not necessarily about whether or not the economy is healthy, but perhaps something about the just uh, a new a way of looking at something that one hasn't quite seen before, you know, a way of looking at a wheelbarrow, a way of looking at a plum in an icebox, some modest little shift in the world, but a shift, mm. a revelation. And basically, if there isn't some kind of revelation, well, it hasn't been worth one's while to be in there. Mm. I think also what you're... Um, what you're alluding to, uh, in, a, in a general way, also is, um, we're not sure what the place of poetry is in a culture like this. I mean, it's not the culture you grew up in, where it was lived and breathed, and not, as you say, not the dom- domain of poetry world, but of ordinary people in ordinary life. Um, I, I, but I, I sense that you've, I mean, you know, you tell us stories somewhere about. Um, you know, being with your son, your children, you know, mm-hmm. that children are natural poets, that somehow that this is with us. And you told the story about your son driving along on the highway and saying those lights are like tadpoles, right? And we, we've, we've all had that experience. Um, I think I've given one interview too many. <laughs> I really do. I well, vaguely, I may stop. I vaguely remember well, that. Well, this is one way. But, oh, but the, the, yeah. All right, I'll stop quoting no, no, you no, yourself. No, not at all. But, no, no, but I think this idea that somehow, how does it get lost? I mean, what's, your, what's your analysis of that? Um, I, I'm afraid that uh, too often it gets educated out of us. Yeah. I mean, that is something we've heard uh, once or twice, maybe more than once or twice. But I really believe this, that the natural capacity that an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old has for coming up with, unselfconsciously un- coming up with um, novel ways of seeing the world, I mean, ways that actually inform us mm-hmm. about how the world is. Not, they're fanciful in some sense, but they're actually instructive, I think. And one of the reasons why the child, and I, you know, we've heard this from William Wordsworth, the child is father to the man, but I think in some sense she is because she is capable of that on... Um, programmed um, on um, unthinking way of seeing the world. No, no preconceptions, no misconceptions. And there comes a point actually where I think we begin to educate that out of them. You know, at some at some point we say, "Oh, that's lovely. That's very nice." But at some point we probably said, "Well, you know, actually, you know, your tadpole analogy doesn't really hold up. Yeah. You know, get serious, get real, grow up." Yeah. And um, you know that uh, capacity to be innocent and open, for want of better terms. Um, ignorant again. To see unexpected likenesses, metaphors. That's right. Mm -hmm. And we continue to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we tend, you know, whether or not we write poetry, we continue to see these unexpected um, connections. And that, of course, it's odd that it doesn't have more 
more of a place in the world um, because that idea of the, the connection is quite central, of course, to who we are and how we operate. We love to make connections. Yeah. And um, it's, what, it's what makes us feel good in the world. Uh, it's what sends our endorphins buzzing around or whatever they do, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, so if somehow in the poetry business, let's say, other things begin to push in. One of them is that poetry of a certain kind is introduced into the head. Uh, what passes for poetry uh, tends to end up as merely Dr. Seuss. Mm. Now, doc- I mm. love Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. I think he's fabulous. Mm-hmm. I think he's fabulous. If you ask a nature-old to write a poem, she'll come up with the tadpoles. You ask a 15-year-old to write a poem, and it's sort of sub, sub, sub Seuss. Interesting. And something has happened. And I think a large part of this falls on the shoulders of educators in the broadest sense, the parents, the teachers. This is poetry. And of course, it's one form of poetry. Mm-hmm. But my own view is that um, children should be, um, insofar as we have any (laughs) control over them at all, and of course as parents we know we have less and less, um, uh, as it should be. But in some sense, I think we should be introducing them to Robert Frost and Lord Byron Mm. and Tennyson and Marianne Moore and Elizabeth Bishop and Emily Dickinson and John Donne. You know, we should be giving them not "quote unquote" children's poetry, yeah. but poetry, right? In just the way, I mean, there is a division of children's music, and you know, who's going to? I'm not going to try to put that out of business, but you know, I think it's much, much more effective to give them Mozart and uh, and Handel and whoever. I mean, is that grown-up music? Children's music? It's music. Yeah, give yeah. them music, and. Um, I do think that, um, you know, we are what we eat. And if you are given a completely Seussian diet, as I say, I love Seuss. But if that's all you're eating, Mm -hmm. there are going to be problems. Mm -hmm. And that compounds, that compounds the problem. There are other aspects. uh, Again, um, uh, you know, poetry is uh, perhaps often overly taught. Mm. When, when the teacher comes round to teaching poetry, as she, she does uh, reluctantly, and when everything else has been covered, I think in many schools, not all, um, she herself is actually quite nervous about poetry. She has probably had a bad, the teacher has to say, has probably had quite a bad experience with poetry. Uh, it was the last thing her teacher taught yeah. her. And then what happens is that the teacher feels obliged to prove to the child that poetry is difficult because if it weren't, there'd be no point in her being there. Hmm. She has to show the child the intricacies of the poem, the great unknown territory of the poem that without the teacher, uh, the child would get lost and wouldn't last a week, wouldn't last a day. You know, would die of exposure right, in the right, poem, right, right? Right. Without this fantastically um, 
prepared guide through mm-hmm. the poem. And, um, you know, I think as teachers, we all run the risk of wanting to show how smart we are. And it's part of what happens then is that the child is convinced that a poem is never about what it seems to be about. Mm. It's always about something else. Mm. It's always encoded in some way. Inexplicable. Inexplicable. It's never about what it is, what it seems to be about. And it's beyond us. It's beyond us. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, it is not beyond us. It's right there. And what what has tended to happen, and uh, one of the reasons why there may be a little difficulty with the reading of poetry in, in most cultures, actually, not only this, is that we have neglected to uh, accept that to re- to listen to music, you have to learn to listen to music. Now, we, we learn to listen to music by having the radio on 24 hours a day, by by being mm-hmm. bombarded by it in the mall, everywhere. So we're actually quite au fait with mm-hmm. how music works. Right. We are absolutely au fait with how film works. When we go to see the new, whatever, blockbuster, we um, are very well equipped to watch it. And we know what it's alluding to, if anything. We know its structure. We recognize a flashback. We're able to come out of it and say, you know, along with uh, Rotten Tomatoes, I give that 80 Right, Along with Siskel right. and Ebert, yeah. it's two thumbs up yeah. yeah, or two thumbs down. With poetry, we have not had that exposure. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. And, and, and you're the poetry editor of The New Yorker. So I'm told. Which, so you, which, which infiltrates poetry uh, in along with other kinds of writing and thinking and reviewing. As you said, it's next to the film review. Um, it is, and mm-hmm. that's one of the great things about that magazine. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's very a, rare in, in America. It's a fabulous magazine in many ways, including that way. And the, But our, we have a difficulty, though. We have a difficulty. And the difficulty is that we're able to carry only 100 poems a year. What uh, does able mean? Because of room constraints? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And... Um, you know, there are two poems a week in the uh, in the magazine, usually. Um, let's say a hundred a year. And we know all too well that there are more than a hundred good poems been written in this mm. country. Mm. Many more. Mm. Many, many more. And, uh, I mean, we do our bit and I think the reach of that magazine is astonishing. Almost every week I hear from a poet who says, I have never had so many people get in touch with me. People were emailing me, calling me up, getting in touch, and never haven't heard of them from them for 30 years, mm-hmm. but they saw this poem. Right. Perhaps they were in the doctor's office, who knows? Let's hope they had a subscription. So what I think um, uh, would be fabulous would be if the New York Times, the the San Francisco Chronicle, the LA Times, whatever, the the Boston Globe. If these newspapers were able, I know they have very difficult difficult times at the moment, but, uh, you know, I would love to think that the New York Times, which is a truly astonishing production, 
mean, how they get that out every day is astonishing. Mm-hmm. Um, if they could just have a po- at least a poem, if not a, every day, every couple of days, once a week, it would actually they wouldn't have to pay anything for it. Mm. They'd need to pay somebody to keep an eye on it, I suppose. But it would be to get the sense that poetry is not special. Right. That it's there as a just another feature and factor and fact of mm-hmm. uh, life. Amidst all of our other ways of Amidst communicating, of, writing. Or being. And being. Mm. Um, you know, just... Um, it, would be, it would be lovely to think that people might be discussing the poem in the paper the way they'd be discussing the, the, right. the, the Mets score. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, you know, having said that, I am not one of these people. I, I, I've sort of kind of sworn, I suppose, that I really don't want to be part of too many more discussions of, you know, the, 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 the demise of poetry, the mm-hmm. poor state that mm-hmm. poetry is in. I mean, frankly, there are a lot of people writing poetry. There aren't enough reading it. The, m- m- more of the people who are writing it, frankly, could be doing with reading a bit more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but it's not, it's not necessarily a an art form that is a death's door. I, I, ju- I, I just don't, don't think subscribe so either. to it. No, Good. I don't either. And I, I see it bubbling up mm-hmm. in new forms, you know, poetry slamming, all these things that are happening. I think sure. new generations, because, you know, my experience and when we put poetry on the air in, in this radio show mm-hmm. is that people respond to it like they were starved for it all along and they didn't know it. It's not even just – it's not a discovery. that They understand it wasn't even optional. Um, well, I think that's why it's, a, it's really a responsibility of the, you know, the media outlets, as we call them, I guess. seems like a crass term. But it's our responsibility to, to um, give people that opportunity. Mm. You know, I'm sure that, um, you know, watching another hoarder's show – or watching another, you know, the Mad Wives of Minneapolis or wherever it is, <laughs> um, you know, you know, we've had enough of that. Mm. Um, I like to think that people will say, you know, get up one day and say, "Look, we've had enough of this." Unfortunately, um, I don't think it quite works like that. We have to give it to them, and when they get it, they know they wanted it, as yeah. you say. Mm-hmm. But um, and maybe they keep watching hoarders, and it's just part of the ecosystem. Hoarders is great. <laughs> who, who wouldn't want to? I mean, one couldn't be a poet and not be a hoarder of sorts. Right. Not be, in yeah. some sense, interested in, um, in some sense, mm-hmm. um, a um, slightly um, crazy about order. You know, hmm. hoarding presumably is just another version of obsessive compulsive disorder or whatever. What, what do we call it? Oh, um, OCD. Yeah, there's another mm-hmm. version of it, though, um, where we, you know, yeah, obsessive compulsive yeah. disorder. Yeah. yeah, It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think at some level, actually, the poet is is um, raging for order, you know, mm-hmm. See, detecting, making order in the world. Only one way of doing it. Mm. Many people are doing it. But poetry is certainly 
one form of that. You know, I want to tell you, um, I, I'm one of these people who is not a, cannot abandon the printed page. Right, mm-hmm. I, I do still do all my reading in books. Same here. Um, uh, however, and even my magazines, but I stumbled upon the fact that when you read The New Yorker on the iPad, you can listen to the poet reading the poem, which is brilliant. So it's one of the few places I'm now going, you know, to this mobile device for the reading because it's it's both of those layers of the of the poem, which is so well, wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's I'm delighted you enjoy that, and mm. I think you know I don't want to be uh, crowing about that magazine. But, uh, it seems inappropriate somehow, but I do say that uh, I would say that you know they've done a fabulous job of trying to make the online version or the tablet version of it um, interesting. It looks great. I mean, they have fabulous designers. It looks good. And it's actually um, something that one one is happy to look at Mm -hmm. and, as you say, listen to. And that indeed is the ideal way to experience a poem Mm -hmm. is a combination of being able to read it and being able to hear it. Um, Because there's always something of interest in how, uh, uh, how, in particular, the person through whom it came into the world delivers it into the world. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing may be that they seem to have no idea that there's a connection between that line ending and where they stopped. That may be one of the interesting things. But in general, um, there's something revelatory again. Mm-hmm. About about having that experience, and uh, you know, we're our first experience of poetry was, if we were lucky, was an auditory one. And while not all poems absolutely function uh, as oral experiences, of course they don't. Um, there are many that operate more for the eye. Um, most of them do, and most mostly there's something um, there's something uh, rewarding mm-hmm. to be had from mm-hmm. that experience mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, i um i spent some i lived for a while in in uh, in divided Berlin in the 1980s when the wall divided the city and experienced a place where poets were heroes right i mean Poets were um, people didn't have have a lot of what makes life meaningful or comfortable handed to them, but they did carve out lives of dignity and beauty and integrity. And in those spheres, poets were such important people. Poetry had a you know it was cherished and and it was also dangerous. And these poets sometimes got expelled. And I know that. You know, I I was last year at a gathering where there were poets from places like Sierra Leone. I mean, it's true across human history that in dark times, often, you know, that that this this need in us for poetry, I think, rises to the surface, becomes more evident. Now, you are often called a a poet of the troubles that you came out of of Northern Ireland's uh, trauma. I just, I wonder how, um, wonder how you think about that and if you feel that you were f- formed by also that kind of intensity. 
Well, I suppose, um, you know, I've seen myself described as such. I've seen all kinds of descriptions, mind you. Uh, <laughs> you know, I suppose certainly it's the case that um, I was born 1951. I suppose that, you know, my life when I was a child, there was um, an IRA campaign in the 1950s that probably most people in this part of the world wouldn't know about. So, uh, and there were, of course, British troops um, in, in Northern Ireland at that point. And in fact, the, the, it, there's always been some sort of trouble yeah. in Ireland. Um, it's, it's part of the deal. And um, then, of course, there was a, a particular um, efflorescence. Is that the word? Mm. It seems like a strange word. Um, uh, in, in the late 1960s. Actually, in that case, of course, heavily influenced by the U.S. experience by civil mm. rights, civil rights movement in the U.S., so that the theme tune, as it were, of the Northern Ireland civil rights movement was We Shall Overcome. So it was, it, it was a time, of course, in, in uh, various parts of Europe uh, when there was uh, protest, there was disruption, people were taken to the streets. So a lot of things came together um, in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. I went to Belfast in 1969 as a student. Um, so in that sense, um, m- m- my writing life coincided with uh, a lot of political turmoil. Right. And I lived in Belfast through the the 70s, which were you know, pretty pretty rough, particularly in the early 70s. The eight, I left in the mid-80s. And uh, so, um, you know, it is a feature of one's life there as a citizen, never mind as a poet. And it's a feature of my life now because while I've lived in the U.S. for 30 years almost, you know, I still, I'm still part of that. I mean, I'm still... Um, Occupied, preoccupied, it varies a little bit. Some days I'm preoccupied um, by it, albeit briefly, but somewhere it's occupying me. It's part. It's part of who I am. Yeah. And uh, I suppose you know that one. Since that is the case, it's inevitable that that aspect of life there be represented in the poems. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that I set out to represent them, uh, represent it, but it represents itself. It comes out in the poems, aspects of it. Um, so, um, but, you know, to, to a poet of the troubles is, uh, would be one perhaps small uh, aspect of mm. of. of what I do. And it's not as if I have a particular view on the troubles. I don't have a particular axe to grind, a political position that I um, uh, occupy. Right. Uh, because I, frankly, I wouldn't want to say a, a, you know, a, a pox on both their houses, but uh, uh, I, I, I would, or something along those lines. I, I um, don't, I'm not persuaded by the rhetoric um, of either side, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, frankly, Northern Ireland has been 
ill-served by its politicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're having terrible trouble at the moment. Um, they really can't agree on, you know, whether they should turn their eggs over in the morning. Um, they There are more, speaking of Berlin, there are more peace walls, so-called, in Belfast at the moment than there were 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so one has to ask oneself, I mean, it's terrifying to think that in actual, in, in actual fact, in fact, um, there are problems that simply have not gone, gone away. Mm-hmm. And there are... Um, some questions as to about, uh, about the efficacy of the system by which they're being addressed, right. if they're being addressed right. at all. Right. Well, so let me turn the question a little bit. Um, do you have thoughts, and this might also, this might speak to where this country is right mm-hmm. now in this early 21st century with so many large open questions um, I'm glad you, you think so. Yeah. Not everybody thinks that. Oh, well. Well, a lot of people think the deal is done here. Mm. You know, that America has a, a arrived at the condition of being America. Yeah, well, we're human beings, so the deal is never done, right? <laughs> well, I think so. <laughs> yeah. But I, other people, for example, on the poetry thing, yeah. on the poetry front, I think a lot of people continue to think, well, poetry actually happens in one of these more interesting places. Right. Well, so yeah. So that. So my question to you is, uh, and you know, you're working with students, right? You're working with young people also here. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think about the role of poetry in in hard times and in moments of um, upheaval? Because this is a moment of upheaval, whether we are reckoning with it or not. Do you mean in the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S. It's true. Well, yes. I mean, as I say. For people to recognize that it is, I think, is is probably – I think a lot of people are reluctant. Mm-hmm. Despite all the evidence, despite what they see on the, on the uh, TV news, if they watch the TV news. And there are many reasons why they could actually could do well not to watch the TV news mm-hmm. because so much of it is bunkum. So and little of it is – demoralizing and So little of it is news. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far as I understand. Um, but, you know, it's... Um, one, one would like to think that um, poetry and the other arts would would um, help us to some extent uh, make sense of these things. And I'm sure there is actually a certain amount of writing now that... Uh, uh, you know, represents, uh, for example, the black experience in this country in a way that, uh, you know, has been is, – is very refreshing and is, you know, very welcome. Um, will that uh, stop policemen, uh, you know, shooting uh, black men at will, it seems, in some cases? Mm. I don't know. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about poetry – is that and poets is that we are often called upon to do the work put crudely that should be done by other agencies hmm. Hmm. you know we don't necessarily generally at least ask painters or philosophers or composers 
um, or um, many other art forms of artiste to help us solve our societal problems. <laughs> many of the, and it's partly because, of course, we think there's a, and understandably so, there's that poets are indeed special cases. <laughs> and that ha- have some kind of uh, extraordinary insight into how things work, which in ways they do. But I don't know if we should be um, expected to come in and uh, solve society's problems. Mm-hmm. It's part of a, it's something that has been, an idea that's been presented by poets themselves, of course as well as readers, Mm -hmm. that somehow poetry may uh, be a form of salve, of salvation, Mm -hmm. that uh, it's a form of sucker, Mm -hmm. Mm S-U-C-C-O-U-R, sucker, um, in the world. And, you know, I'm not absolutely certain if that's the case. One would like to think that to some extent it can help us understand our lives, um, raise some of the issues, give some kind of uh, revelation, to use that word again, about how things are. But I don't really think it's realistic for, for us to expect poetry or poets to solve problems that need, in fact, to be solved by politicians, Mm -hmm. by police chiefs, Mm -hmm. by public officials, by all those P's, you know? Yes, but I wonder if that moment of desperation where, you know, literalistic, can-do, pragmatic Americans, you know, come into that moment of acknowledging one's helplessness and ignorance that you talked about a moment ago, which is a moment of honesty and truth. Um, I'd love and, to see And it. turn to poetry as one of the resources. As one of the resources. As one of the resources for courage and bringing some beauty and perhaps some playfulness and um, some reflection of the unconscious. I think that's right. It would be, it would be great uh, if that were to happen. There's a little bit of a problem, though, which is in the popular imagination um, – Poetry is all salve. It's all beauty, Mm. things of beauty, beauty in the world. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, as any uh, for those who hold that position, uh, if one actually looks at poetry, one realizes that more often than not, it's um, a representation of ugliness, of the difficulties of the world, the complexity Mm -hmm. of the world, and. Um, and, and and must, I think, is ne- necessarily so, mm-hmm. because that, unfortunately, is the larger part of what we, what we meet. And again, I think it's, um, it's too much for us to go to poetry or any of the other art forms, expecting uh, them to 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 bring us merely beauty. Right, or and, to be merely uplifting. And to be merely uplifting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, to be... to be, I read somewhere recently about, I think it was Bruce Springsteen, who was talking about, 
how many of I hope I'm not misquoting him. I think it was himself talking about how many of his songs are are uh, constructed, and they begin with an, an, some sense of desolation, mm. and then some some sense of uplift or whatever. Um, but desolation is um, is a part of the deal. Yeah, and I think that's a good example too, because I don't think this. Whatever the uplift is doesn't negate the desolation. Right? That's it's still right. there. That's right. And I think, you know, as human beings, we have to live uh, amidst this terrific um, morass mess of information and these various um, up- upheavals in the world, mm-hmm. the various assaults on us, physical intellectual um, that are that push in uh, on our lives um, to find ways of um, I suppose uh, be, be a phrase I use sometimes being equal to that mm. you know mm. being equal to that pressure is um, it's very difficult but we have to do it mm-hmm. I guess you do. Uh, song is, and music are important to you. You have a rock band, is that right? Well, I do try to write lyrics, mm-hmm. uh, and I've tried to write lyrics for for various um, for various bands. Um, bands, you know, come and go. We're at the moment. I'm working with a group called Rogue Oliphant, which uh, is a really a, essentially a, they write some songs, but it's basically a backing group. I'm interested in spoken word poetry, mm-hmm. as, among mm-hmm. other, as they call it. <laughs> I'm not sure what. Right, well, there's what not a, the same thing that was happening all well, along. Well, I think it probably is. But, <laughs> right. you know, there's always something interesting that happens when music comes into play. Mm. And uh, I just, I love music. Um, you know, I was like, like many of a certain age. Uh, 64 now, um, you know, I was, uh, when I heard when, I, when I'm 64 from the Beatles, um, it's, I suppose, you know, like everyone else, perhaps themselves, <laughs> they were thinking, you know, that's a long way down the road. Yeah. But the truth is that has been part of our, our um, part of our being, actually, right the way through. Um, it, and in fact, rock and roll is as much, I would imagine, I, I would be surprised if it weren't the case, if it's not as much a, a an inspiration to my writing mm. life as, as you know, um, Theodore Retka, you know, um, or, or, or any of the other... Uh, Writers whose names begin with R, <laughs> Robert Frost, yeah. uh, and uh, you know that, that's because again it's so ingrained in us. It's mm-hmm. we're almost indivisible from it. It's it would be very hard to distinguish oneself from uh, from all those noises with that have been in, on you know that have been in the air for so long, right and. The, the hilarious thing is, um, in, in some sense hilarious, 
is that uh, one can still go and see. You know, I went the other night to see Frankie Valley, for example. <laughs> you know, yeah. which is a bit like going to see uh, Abraham or something. <laughs> you know? And uh, you know, Chuck Berry is still going after a fashion. And the Rolling Stones are still. I going. went to see the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. the other day too, mm-hmm. and you know. In other words, and Paul McCartney is still going, Leonard Cohen is still going, Paul yeah. Simon, and so many of them. And, you know, they're still there. They're, they, many of them, many of them have sort of tried to keep abreast of um, their movement through the world. I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, I mean, it seems strange to To see the Stones still singing about kind of teenage sex and drugs, um, uh, they, they, I, I wish they would do something else. You yeah, know, try to yeah. try to make try to do something uh, that's kind of again equal to this moment when they're still functioning. Yeah, I mean they they yeah. are actually still functioning quite quite well. Uh, Paul Simon still does it. Leonard Cohen still does it. Paul McCartney still does it. They're trying to uh, allow it to be an art form that has some kind of um, relevance, mm-hmm. you know. You, um, I think you make um, such an important point that, you know, that poetry and song are so much, so much, uh, I mean, that to the to the extent that there's a border between them, it's very porous. Um, and in fact that uh, here I am quoting you at yourself again you know you, you talked somewhere about um, uh, the fact that there's kind of a modern disdain of poetry that rhymes it's not necessarily in fashion and, or goes out of fashion again and again but that in fact in song what we have is rhyming poetry and that that, that continually keeps humanity kind of in touch with 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 that, whether um, the official world of poetry is doing it or not, it's so interesting. It's a, it's a way to think about how poetry is, in fact, woven into our lives in ways that we don't of course imagine. It is. Of course, it is. And you know, I, I myself am a great believer in 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 spreading the net, in spreading the net as widely as possible. And uh, it's not even spreading it; it's widespread. And um, poetry comes in all sorts of forms. All kinds of forms, all shapes, all manner um, of ways, and um, I, I like to think. I try to. Actually, I don't try very hard. I think I'm naturally um, open to to poetry from a huge um, array of sources, you know, and and I think. If we take into account um, all the manifestations of poetry in the world, including some in prose fiction, by the way, mm-hmm. and non-fiction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in uh, the the ways in which it goes back to some of its earliest sources, the riddle, the prayer, the charm. Mm-hmm. The, the incantation, um, the, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, 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 the spell, which, uh, of course, we're all 
uh, forms of poetry in some mm-hmm. in some in, in societies and continue to be, I think, in many. Um, if one accepts, you know, in one's uh, in one's uh, in one's uh, expansiveness, <laughs> um, you know, rock and roll and um, mm. rap and yeah. country music. Um, but the rhyme thing, for example, is, um, you know, the couplet is the, in the staple of the, the rhyming couple is, continues to be the staple of poetry in English, as many rap songs will suggest, will make clear. I've never understood this view uh, and what, which you describe there as, the, as the, the, the current thinking or one of the views about of poetry as not rhyming, necessarily not rhyming. Mm. I, I don't understand that at all. I think that's just baloney. Mm. And I know generally when people say to me, they come up and say, you know, I used to love poetry when it rhymed. Mm-hmm. You can bet your bottom dollar that that person has not looked at poetry for 50 years. At least, because there's plenty of rhyming. Still. Absolutely, they mm-hmm. don't know what they're talking mm-hmm. about. They have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is much poetry that rhymes, for what it's worth. It's not actually worth anything. It has no intrinsic value any more than poetry that doesn't rhyme mm-hmm. <laughs> right. is is of some intrin- intrinsic value. Uh, there are those who say, "Well, that's what the twentieth century was about." We broke away from the shackles of right. all this kind of right. nonsense. That's really. the idea that's out it's there. It's nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a received idea. It has no intellectual heft at all. Mm-hmm. It's something that people say because somebody has said it to them once and they haven't thought about it okay. at all. Um, this is wonderful. I want to just ask a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. It's. Um, Do you think you have stuff? I have absolutely, no idea. What, absolutely. Uh, if you have stuff you might like. I so no much. Idea. I wanted to. Um, I. Uh, you can see I always have far too many notes. No, no, not at all. That's good. Um, I reached out to a friend who is in Northern Ireland, who actually um, heads the Corimila community. Oh yeah. And he's a poet, in addition to being a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to read you, where is it, what he said to me. Um, I told him I was interviewing you. Mm-hmm. And he said, and this I think goes back to what, what you said a moment ago about what's, what the poet can be expected to do and shouldn't be expected to. He said, Muldoon has never been a poet that I turn to to soothe the heart, more to trouble the waters and to electrify the possibilities of form and limits. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he's a wise man. Because <laughs> if obviously, he, if he wants something to soothe the heart, yeah. I mean, he, sh- he he needs to go somewhere else. Yeah, and you know, perhaps to the the scriptures, mm. or mm. you know, any of the, mm. the the great texts of the great organized religions. Yeah. You know, that's what they're in the business some of the time mm-hmm. uh, of doing that. Though I'd say that vast tracts of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as some refer to it, are, are hardly likely to soothe the heart. Right. Well, uh, that de- was, the desolation is big in those texts absolutely, as well. Right. Yes, absolutely. I wouldn't go right. there for comfort necessarily no. either. Um, I'd go for a cup of coca. <laughs> um, he, he was telling me that in the Irish language... Um, 
the words for poem and poet have different etymologies. Are you familiar with this? It was kind of interesting that in Irish the word for poem mm-hmm. is dawn, mm-hmm. and it holds links to the Latin word for destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, that the word for poet has a completely different linguistic root. So that it really, I mean, it kind of echoes what you said early on, that the poem itself has this identity and this force. Um, yes, I mean, the word for filler, uh, the word for right, poet for is poet, filler. Right. Mm-hmm. Filler. Mm-hmm. filler. You know what? I'm not sure what the etymology of that is. I should, mm-hmm. I should know that. And mm-hmm. maybe did know it once, uh, but I don't know it now. Filler. Filler. Um, f- yeah, mm-hmm. I can't. I can't be certain of this. Um, it could be, you know. Of course, the word poet itself, from the Greek, means a maker. So it's possible that the f bit of it is related to fach, fact, factoring, or mm. something like mm. making. Uh, you know, fab- fabricating as a kind of Indo-European. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'm probably making that up. Um, but um, the word for a poem is Dan, mm-hmm. D-A-N. And, uh, you know, it would be a brave woman or man who would actually hold forth just as I have, sort of, uh, on what the etymology of any of these words might be. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's a tre- treacherous area. What, the, the, uh, the language? The, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, one, one would be... I mean, there are many words that one could indeed say... Mm-hmm. They're cognate with this or they're derived from that. I mean, for example, the word for a book in Irish is lior, which is obviously related to the word liber but the, for a, from Latin. And it comes in from Latin. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody was – apart from the Ogham guys that we were talking about, nobody was writing anything um, – uh, in the lines of a book before the Latin-speaking monks. So we can see it comes from that, uh, almost certainly. Dan, I was recently... Um, um, th- there's another word in Irish, dan, which means fit. And it could be that there's a connection between those two. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, po- between, so the poem connected to fate, having a fate. fateful... Or being... You know, one of the things I'm fascinated by, and as I say, I'm not certain of this etymology, uh, mm-hmm. etymology mm-hmm. and I hope you don't get thousands of phone calls saying, what does he think he's talking about? It's all baloney. But um, I am nonetheless interested in the idea of that sense that we have when we read a poem uh, uh, that... It, there's something inevitable about it, mm. that it was fated to be mm-hmm. like this. It was never meant to be any other way. This is the only way it can be. It can't be translated. It can't be... Uh, we, we, we can't give a presse of it. We can't really describe, um, describe it. Uh, in terms other than its own, it was always meant to be. It came through us, uh, through a poet, and it's like this. And um, so that sense of the the kind of um, the, the the fatedness, the inevitability, and perhaps even the eternity of the poem. Hmm. That may be your last word. Um. Let me just ask you. Sure. This is a large question. Sure. And I'm not asking you to I'll answer. I'll give you a little but, answer. Okay. The, it's just the question is: um, 
how would you think, how would you start to talk about, because this is, this is an answer that would have no end, what your life um, as a poet um, has, now that you're 64, as the song <laughs> predicted, but you never thought it would be about you, um, how, how has, how, how, what has your life taught you about revealed to you about what it means to be human like how would you start to start to think about that maybe what you're continuing to learn what it means to be human yeah that large existential question well you know of course when one's 16 and looking at the 64 year old one imagines that he knows something, is certain of something, that his experience really adds up to something, that his experience may be brought to bear on some, not any task, particularly whatever his, you know, his his area of uh, focus might be, if. He has one. And in my case, um, and whether this is an answer to your question, I don't know, but I think it might be going towards it, is that the thing I know now, and I'm sure this is true of many, is how, not even how little I know, but how I know nothing, in fact. You know? And... Uh, I thought I know nothing about anything. And the things that we thought indeed were verities. Um, I think I'm right in saying that, uh, you know, ranging from Pluto being a planet (laughs) through um, E equaling MC squared, about which there seems to be some question. Never mind the notion of the universe, which was a phrase we used when we were, from time to time, hmm. um, in the uh, the. Uh, in fact, I think there was a Catholic newspaper called the Universe. Um, at that stage, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying we had no idea that it should really be called the universes, the millions, or is it billions of universes? So um I think um uh, to be to be to try to take that in is almost impossible. Yet I suppose um we must try on this tiny planet which I have sailed around, circumnavigated which gives one a, you know an even more profound sense of how tiny it is. I mean, you can fly around it in a few hours. It's tiny. Mm. Uh, to be um, um, set down here, however, um, to try to, um, one would hope, do our best while we're here. And I think, really, our impulse... Is to, is to do our best, however, however um, 
often we might lose sight of it um, and try to um, try to be kind-ish to one another while we're still here. Because at the end of the day, uh, one thing we do know is that this world is not going to be here. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's wonderful. I'm so excited to... Sorry, I'm sure I'm talking nonsense. Huh? Does that make any sense yes, at all? It, sense. <laughs> it made sense. It was also very. It's a, I love you. It's a very the way you you speak. Everything has, is lyrical. And well, I just wonderful. I hope it makes some sense. That's the problem. You know, how much did you did you record actually? That seventy just now. That mm. seventy five minutes, seventy minutes. Seventy five yeah. minutes. Okay. Well. You know, just the only thing I'd ask you is not yeah. to have me say anything too, too I know, stupid, I, you know. Well, first of all, you didn't say anything stupid. But our point in editing is to, is to, uh, and we could all use digital editing, is to bring out the absolute most articulate, okay. uh, compelling. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I promise you will, you'll be happy with it. You'll be happy okay, with good, how people I'm respond to it. Thank you so much for, yeah. for, for having me on your show. Yeah, well, um it's an honor, and we'll let you know. I'm not sure when we're going to be airing it. I think probably before the end of this year, but we'll know well in advance. And